This is Maine Currents, Independent Local News, Views, and Culture. I'm Amy Brown. It's the third Tuesday of the month, so it's time for our Elections 2020 edition of Maine Currents. And I'm joined by our regular guests, Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine, and former State Representative Ralph Chapman, as well as semi-regular guest Ann Luther, and is uh, the host of the Democracy Forum program here on WERU in partnership with the League of Women Voters of Maine, where she serves on the board of directors. We are recording this program via Zoom on Monday, so if anything major has changed in the next 24 hours, forgive us for not noting it on today's program. So yeah, this is different. We're here by Zoom. This is not what we did last month. Uh, maybe what we're doing for a while. How's everybody doing? Holding up. That's Ann Luther. <laughs> doing okay. Hanging Amy, in there. Amy Freed. I'm doing fine as well. Yeah. Yeah. How, how is this all affecting everyone's work? Are you all working at home? Or are you on furlough? Or uh, The League of Women Voters closed its office on um, March 15th. So we've all been working from home since then because we're a mostly volunteer organization. We're used to sort of being spread all over the place. But um, having the office closed is a little bit different. The thing for us is that elections are still going on, and so the work is actually incredibly busy right now. Um, so despite the fact that we're trying to hold it together from various remote locations, there's a lot going on right now. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about your show last week, too, and, and yeah. all the work that you all are doing as we go. I'm retired, so this is not a major change for me, uh, but I have been spending some time trying to look at, uh, at the, the data and the data analysis relative to the pandemic, and in particular, how that does not correspond to what we hear from many politicians. Right, we'll get into that. And Amy, last time we spoke, you were at the university, I think, but the I think classes had just shut down at that point a month ago when we spoke last, if that's right. Well, um, classes are still going on, but we're doing them remotely. Right, so right, yeah. People have had to transform their teaching in uh, various ways, teaching virtually. Plus, um, this is a time of year we do advising for the next semester. There's also a lot of planning that goes on. Um, working on the admission season, which has had to change. And um, so, you know, really the, the whole sweep of things that we do, we're trying to do and, and, and do it in a very different environment and not knowing what things are going to look like in several months. Yeah, yeah. Well, pretty much the same for the radio station. I mean, the last time we did this program a month ago, Ralph was in the studio with me. And I think you mentioned, as, as you were leaving, Ralph, this is the last time we're going to be doing this for a while. And it was the last live show at the station. For a few days, we had all of the staff coming in, and then it was decided that really we needed to just get it down to a couple of people because if anybody tests positive who'd been at the station, shutting the whole station down for cleaning and dealing with all of that would take the station off the air. So now we're down to one or two people there and keeping a distance from each other and the rest of us when we need to go in call ahead and we keep well more than the six foot distance so it's uh it's an adaptation definitely for everyone an adjustment for everyone getting used to using zoom and all of these different things but here we are 
Ralph, I always introduce you as a former state representative, but you also have a science background, and that is uh, part of what's behind how you're, what you're doing during this uh, crisis, this analysis that you've sent around that you've recently updated. So can you say a little bit, I know you have a degree in physics, uh, how that has driven you and then what you're actually doing. So actually one of the reasons that I ran for public office was to try to bring a closer connection of the tools of science into the public policy making processes. Now, one could look at my eight years in the state legislature and depending upon how you look at it, declare my intent there is a failure. But aside from my frustrations at not being more successful at bringing the tools of science into policy making, I, I certainly try to apply my own understanding of what's happening in the world. And uh, for that purpose, I started to plot the daily data that became available relative to the confirmed cases and then the deaths. And I decided to look at just a subset of the data that was available. I decided to look at the data from Italy because Italy's epidemic started before the one in the United States. The United States, uh, then I chose to look at, at Maine. And then I, in addition to those three things, I then started looking at New York City because that's where we had a, a uh, severe crisis in the epidemic. And also, interestingly, I started to look at Louisiana because the Mardi Gras circumstance provided a unique window into what the progression of the virus is. And so I've been plotting that data on a daily basis and trying to make some sense of it. And making sense of that involves uh, curve fitting. Uh, what, what shape do you expect the data to take? And is it taking that shape? And if it is, what does that shape tell us about what's going to happen in the future? And in essence, uh, this is a form of applying a model to uh, the, the current pandemic and trying to see what the future holds. Now, I'm not an expert in this field. My field is applied physics, energy, renewable energy, energy efficiency. That's what I've published in. That's what I have more familiarity with. So I'm, for me, this has been a learning experience. Uh, I declare no expertise. I let the modelers, uh, have their say, I try to look to see what it is they are saying and make some sense of it. And just to drop to a couple of bottom line ideas here, it's very difficult, very difficult to predict what's going to happen in the future based on what's happening now or in, in, the, in the past uh, because there are too many unknowns, too many variables. One of the major variables is what human behavior will be. Mm -hmm. uh, we can look and see what it has been, but we don't know what it will be. So I, I want to just very quickly mention that we're hearing on the news, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, at the current time we're hearing about 
whether we've passed the peak or we're at the peak or whatever, and or the worst is over, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And these comments are uh, uh, political comments uh, in terms of um, the peak that suggests that we know that it's going to be a rise and it's going to be a fall and the peak is in between. And there's only one peak. Well, and there's only one peak. Yes, that, that's, that's an implicit assumption when you refer to having be, being at or past the peak. I think Amy has a question. Just jump in if you, if, is that okay, Ralph, if yes, Amy oh, has absolutely. your question? Surely, Amy yes, Green. absolutely. Yeah, I, I thought that your point that it depends on human behavior is really important because, um, like, I've looked at that University of Washington model, and at, which gets cited a lot, but they're assuming continued social distancing, at least through May, and also no interstate travel, like between states, and no international travel. So if we drop that, then the assumptions no longer apply and you would therefore assume more cases. And I think you're at this, also at this point that um, Amy brought up about um, the peak is, is right too, because we've seen this in past pandemics. You get, you can get return later peaks, you know? That's certainly true. And so what we have at the moment, uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to look at Italy is Italy preceded the United States. Uh, at the beginning, it was about 11 days ahead of us. And they kind of hit a peak and it kind of rounded over. And then uh, it's just drifting um, and it's not going down. It isn't, it isn't, if it were symmetrical, if the downslope were the same as the upslope, then the peak would represent the halfway mark. In other words, half the people who were going to die would have died by the peak. But if it doesn't peak, if, it's, if it goes up and then it drifts down or plateaus or goes up and down and up and down uh, for many more months, then we've only seen a much smaller fraction of the total deaths that will, will occur. Now, the point about it depends upon our behavior is where the politics comes in, because our behavior is controlled in part by what our public officials are saying. And that's where we have a real divergence between what the science says and what the politicians say. I can understand a, a, a desire to return to normal, but there is no return to normal. There's a return to, there's a, a, a transition to maybe a, a spot that's more functional than the one we're in at the moment, but it's, that's not a simple matter to get from here to there. So you did an analysis a few weeks ago and then you just updated it. How did things change between then and now? Well, one of the things that I concentrated on about a month ago was the report that had just been released by the Imperial College uh, uh, group that was uh, important for two reasons. One is that 
the report was released on, on Monday, the, the 16th of March, but the preceding weekend it had been given to the high top officials in the White House, and this is a British group, and the top officials uh, in Downing Street. And they had, uh, there was a noticeable change in the public stance of the public officials, leaders of both countries, due to this report. It was a, called a dire report in, in the media. It was predicting uh, maybe in the United States, 2.2 uh, million deaths from the pandemic. And uh, that got people's attention. The work that I did in trying to assemble the data was showing where we were on that projected curve. Now, one of the things that's happened is that the rate of increase in the daily deaths has not followed that curve, fortunately. And, that, and so we have daily deaths now in the range of a couple thousand per day in the United States from the virus. Uh, and by the way, just to put that in context, without the virus, there are about 8,000 deaths per day in the, in the United States from all causes. So another 2,000 deaths per day is a 25% increase in the number of people dying every day uh, just due to the virus. Uh, but th that is a whole lot better than the projections had been a month ago if we did not take any interventions, what are called non-pharmaceutical interventions, the, the social distancing, the hand washing, the don't touch your face, the, 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 all the sorts of things that we've been trying to do to prevent the spread of the virus has worked and has worked in some respects remarkably well. Exactly which features of those non-pharmaceutical interventions are the most important is not quite so clear. And as people start to relax their behaviors, we may learn more about which relaxations are more disastrous and which relaxations are more uh, uh, amenable to our existence. So um, there's, there's a lot that we're gonna learn in the future, but um, uh, it is a, it's a fascinating topic to, to look at what actually affects the way a virus spreads. And every virus is, is different. So what's known about this one is, is we're on the learning curve for it. In so many different ways. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. My guest today for this election 2020 edition of Maine Currents, our Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Political Sciences Department at the University of Maine, former State Representative Ralph Chapman, and Ann Luther, who hosts the Democracy Forum program here in WERU and is also a board member of the League of Women Voters of Maine. So one of the factors in all of what you were just talking about, Ralph, is how the state and federal governments are uh, looking at science, how they're interpreting it, how politics is either following the recommendations or uh, trying to skirt around them. And so how do you all, I wanna put this out there to all of you, how would you rate the state government response versus the federal government response? 
whoever wants to go first, just go ahead and jump in. Well, I mean, I don't know if I would, free. yeah, if I would give grades, but I think the state is just doing so much better job. Um, the um, main CDC director, Nirav Shah, is, Dr. Shah is just, from what I can see, doing, you know, just an excellent job. His briefings are, are wonderful, but, you know, just the work that they're doing in general, uh, getting ready, and sometimes, and perhaps not needing some of the things they're doing to get ready, like setting up these different sites, uh, kind of field hospital sites, but it's good to be ready. That's, it's better to be overprepared. And I think the governor is also doing a good job. I mean, she's trying to balance lots of different competing pressures, but she definitely has imposed a good amount of social distancing um, you know, rules, which has been really helpful. And she's very straightforward, very clear in what she's saying. She doesn't contradict herself. Well, you know, you look at the federal government, it was clearly very late to respond. And you had the president for a long time saying that there really wasn't a problem. And now it just seems to be, you know, highly contradictory, sometimes from one day to another, and sometimes even within the same press event, um, where he'll say, yes, this is the plan for social distancing, and then touting the small groups of protesters who want to get rid of that. So, um, you know, it's just been contradictory, unclear, and late and in, in, ineffective kind of response. And there are all kinds of states who have needs that are just not being met, which means all these people, are their, their needs are not being met. I mean, if we, healthcare workers are, really frontline in this along with other people who have to have a lot of contact with with the public but you know we we need our healthcare workers there to take care of people as they get sick both getting sick of covid and and getting sick on other thing for for other reasons and um, they really need to be protected they need the personal protective equipment and uh, the, the federal government is having states bid against each other, sometimes take some of the shipments that they're getting, find out that they're arriving and actually taking them away from them. Um, it's, just, it's just a very, very badly done. And uh, you know, I, I think it's really gonna be studied in the future as an example of how not to do things. And, and the truth is, we may, there's no reason why we can't expect some pandemic in the future, another pandemic that actually could even be worse. Um, uh, you know, I heard someone uh, talking about this uh, public health um, specialist who said, you know, what if we get a pandemic that's as communicable as measles and as deadly as Ebola, which is, they, they, those are both worse than COVID in those, you know, two things. Um, that could happen. So we really do need to do to learn from this and, you know, do better now, but also learn from it going forward. Anybody else want to weigh in on that, right? Or say what you think the, how the state or federal government are doing? In terms well, of acceptance? I mean, the uncertainty that, that Ralph yeah. points out, like we don't really know what's going to happen um, next month, the month after that, you know, by November. And so looking at it through the narrow aperture, that's, you know, my view is on elections. I think the state is having um, 
difficulty predicting what kind of elections we're going to have in July and then what kind of elections we're going to have in November. And they're tr trying. And, and you, if you listen to the Democracy Forum on the archive from last Friday, you'll hear Allison B.A. say, she's from the ACLU, telling Matt Dunlap how important it is to plan for the worst case because if the best case happens, we'll be okay. But if we get to the new election in, you know, it's not June anymore, it's now July 14th, and we're still in this spot, and we're counting on being back to normal, it's going to be a disaster. So it's very important for the Secretary of State and the governor right now in looking at that July election to make provisions for, you know, massive social distancing, massive absentee voting, limited in-person voting. I, you know, we feel it's important to preserve in-person voting, but to have as many people as possible vote by mail. You know, all of these provisions have to be put in place now, even though we don't have a crystal ball to see what would be possible for July. Because, like, like we say, if we don't plan for the worst case, um, circumstances could easily overtake us. What I mentioned a, a month ago and is, is still a strong feeling of mine, we are very lucky in Maine to have had a public official who was communicated uh, to by a couple of scientists in Hancock County that understood what the scientists were recommending and shut the school system in uh, the Mount Desert Island area. And that was the first school system to shut. Other school systems in the area began to shut. And then by the following week, I think all the schools in the state had shut. I say we're very lucky because the scientists who gave that superintendent that information were professional data analysis people with some expertise in this area that understood that even though at that time there was not a single confirmed case in Maine, they recognized that the virus had been spreading for at least a couple of weeks in Maine at that time. And the sooner you get at the problem, the much greater effect you can have with it, which is why the federal government's delay was so tragic, because a little bit of effort earlier on could have made a much larger difference. So as we're talking this morning, people are headed to Augusta. Maybe they're there already for a protest at the State House. Uh, liberate the state kind of protest, as you've been seeing. A reporter at one of Trump's briefings last week asked him to comment on the protests that are springing up around the country. Uh, a lot of them involve Trump supporters. They are wearing their MAGA hats. Some of them have involved people bringing guns to the state houses. A lot of them are people crowding. Some have been drive around so they're at least keeping the social distancing, but others have been crowds of people crowded together. In Trump's response, he noted that they seemed to like him before he responded to anything else. Since then, he has several times at his briefings defended these folks and said they seem like pretty smart people to him, of course, because they support him. He's now in just the past, although it's hard to track what he's saying because he sometimes contradicts himself in one press conference, but his 
approach that seemed to be a little bit more conservative about opening things back up evolved since those protests happened, not necessarily directly because of them, but uh, the joys of working at home, we've got the dog barking in the background, sorry about that. But uh, it's clear that he's influenced by them and the fact that they like him. And, and there's sort of a feedback loop there because the protests are now increasing. Is Trump's narcissism and enjoying that these people are liking him Actually, do you, and this is just speculation here, but it seems like that could be pushing him in a direction of loosening restrictions and be part of the motivating factor now that he has be, behind pushing states to reopen, even though they don't have the testing. He insists that they have all the, that they need for testing, but they don't. Um, what, what about that dynamic? How much danger do you think will be in it doesn't seem like Maine necessarily is going to respond when Governor Mills has been asked about this. She says, oh, I, I don't, you know, she basically said she never knows what he's going to say from one time to the next. And she's basing her decisions on science. But there's no restriction on travel from state to state. So if other places do open up, this could be dangerous for everyone. So what about that dynamic? Anyone want to comment on that and whether or not you feel like that's a big threat? Uh, Amy Freed? Yeah, I mean, what I would say is I, I think you're right that probably part of President Trump's response is, is rooted in his narcissism, his desire to have people say good things about him. I think politically it also may be a way to put off onto someone else the responsibility of the economic damage that's resulting of from this virus, so to you know, sort of blame the governors for it, uh, so that he's not taking any kind of blame. I'd like to also mention a few things about public opinion, though. Here, which is that, I mean, the polls are very clear that people do think that it is important to continue social distancing, and that's both Democrats and Republicans. Like two thirds support it, correct? The yeah. polls that I've heard recently quoted. Yeah, I mean, there's some variation, but you know, yeah, that's that's a pretty good, you know, estimates and some are higher. Um, and, uh, you know, so there really is pretty strong support for this. Now, earlier on, as the pandemic emerged, I think there was a bigger difference between the parties in terms of whether they thought this was a real thing, you know, whether it was a, whether it was a hoax, you know, as, as uh, Trump kind of said early on. Um, but actually, the, there's fewer partisan differences in that. And if you, you look at the interviews that people are having with a lot of the folks who come to these protests, they're not just concerned about um, the economy. Um, as, as there's, they're, they're, sometimes these are people who really hold conspiracy theories about, about the virus. Like it's not a real, and ranging from it's not a real thing. It's just the deep state trying to hurt Trump. None of this is a real thing. To um, it is a real thing, and it was hatched up in a lab run by you know various X Y Z parties. You know, and it, you know, so some are like, yes, this is really serious, but still we shouldn't. Yeah, you know, it's just this whole variation. And so I really think they're overall not 
terribly representative of even, you know, of Republicans, because most Republicans are at this point willing to continue these various measures. Uh, but this is a part of the Trump base, no doubt about it, you know, kind of that alt-right, far-right part of the Trump base, but it's not um, reflective of even overall Trump supporters or Trump voters or Republicans. Um, you know, and it is interesting to see this variation, how the, how the protests are, because, yeah, you have people in some states all milling around, not wearing masks close to each other, touching each other, shaking hands with people, high-fiving them. And then you have others where it's more of a driving or distancing in Maine, um, Adrian Bennett, who's a Republican candidate for in the primary for the second district, announced that she supports the protests, and so she's going to post things on social media. So she's not even going to attend it. Even far So you have you have a variation even with that. How? Oh, how, hold, hold 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 on just a second. Oh. We had a little bit of a hiccup there. I think everybody froze. Okay, so I, th I think we're back to normal now. So you were saying Adrian Bennett, who's a Republican candidate. Uh, she actually used to be the spokesperson for uh, for uh, for the page as well. So she's going to she supports the protest, but she's going to be posting online. You were saying right. So she's attending virtually. Uh, so that's you know a, I think that's showing a bit of a range there from people in person touching each other right you know, close together to saying they support it but they're not even going to show up to the thing not even in a car um but i mean yeah my bigger point i think is that the i think the most important point in a way is that i don't think these people are terribly representative of of much of anything except this very particular part of the trump base well, regardless of how representative they are, they do have an influence on Trump. And if they're out circulating in public, may potentially have a, a public health impact on others as well. So it'll be I interesting to see how, how states that are more worried about the spread, whether or not they enforce any rules if they're broken about social distancing at the protests and then how that all plays out. I think that one of the points to make, especially from looking at the data that I've been looking at and comparing um, the uh, hotspots of the virus to population density and doing some work looking at what's called the reproduction number of how many people and an infected individual infects, uh, I think it's fairly clear that the higher population density areas have the possibility of maintaining much higher reproduction numbers which cause if the reproduction number is over one that means that the that it will uh, the, the number of infections will increase and increase exponentially and if the reproduction number gets below one then it, it, it dies out that the, the uh, virus dies away so uh, I think that the social distancing has brought reproduction numbers down. That's the purpose of doing these non-pharmaceutical interventions is to bring that 
number down. And in the high density areas, bringing it down may not have brought it down enough. I think that's one of the reasons why New York City area, which is the highest population density region of the country, um, it, it had a lot of trouble trying to control the, uh, the spread of the virus. Ralph, never, what, oh, sorry. What? When Go you're ahead. done, Go I have ahead. a good, well, I was just going to say, I mean, in, in that vein, what did you make about um, the addition of Androscoggin County, one of our more, most rural counties, to the list of now only four counties that have demonstrated community spread? The other three were all our most populous counties, right? Well, I think, so if you look at it at the county level, it's a little bit misleading. Um, that is to say, uh, for example, the population density of Penobscot County as a whole is um, uh, uh, below average for the country. Whereas Penobscot County, as you know, has Maine's third largest city, uh, Bangor. But it also has a dozen and a half of these townships with names like T5R8 that have zero population. And so uh, when you average that out over the whole county, you're not seeing that there's a population density in one spot and a complete lack of population density in other spots. Relative to the definition of community spread that has to do with how many of the cases confirmed cases, which means a test, which means that the person qualified for a test, which meant that they were sick enough to be potentially hospitalized. Uh, how many of those were from, occurred with people who could not identify a mechanism by which they would have caught it? In other words, right, at least 25% no have to be that right. way. That, that, that's correct. And so, um, uh, clearly, one of the high population density areas of a very vulnerable population are the congregate living centers for elder, elderly folks. Uh, in, in, in my latest uh, paper, I, I give some population density numbers for some different situations. Uh, for instance, um, uh, a crowded elevator is, is extremely high population density, uh, you know, 11 million people per square mile in a crowded elevator. But uh, a, a cruise ship is um, uh, in the range of uh, almost a million people per square mile on a cruise ship, whereas the population density of, of New York City is about 27,000 per square mile. So, uh, these numbers actually relate to the need for the social distancing, which is the way we reduce the transmiss transmissibility of the virus from one person to another, is to separate them. In a very rural area, we're already separated quite a bit. And so uh, the, the value of the social distancing um, may be valuable and help us, but we didn't need as much help to begin with. In an area of very high population density, it might not provide enough help. But there are lots of places in between where the, it's a difference between an out of control exponential rise in the number of cases or it's going to turn the corner and go down. And that's why it's so important to maintain these mechanisms by which we cut into that transmissibility of the virus. Yeah, and you know, even certain uh, 
certain worth workplaces could be, be could be problematic. I mean, I don't know of anything like this in Maine, but in South Dakota, which has very very low density as a state, they still had you know big outbreak in a pork processing plant. So you know, just within that particular place, um, there ends up being a lot of spread. And then the question is, do those people go out into the community and then become vectors as well? Well, again, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. We are recording this program live on Monday, the day before it airs via Zoom. So if you hear any sounds like dogs barking in the background, we're all working from home. My guests today are former state representative Ralph Chapman, Amy Freed, Professor of Political Science and Chair of that Department at University of Maine, and Ann Luther, host of Democracy Forum on WERU, and also, uh, which is produced in conjunction with the League of Women Voters of Maine, on which she serves on their board. Uh, so, yeah, let's get a little bit more into the politics piece of it. A month ago, when we did our last live show, Elections Edition of Maine Currents, I asked about whether or not the pandemic might be used as an excuse to postpone the November 2020 elections. Amy Freed, you were saying that uh, it, the Constitution says in January, somebody else has to be president. He can't just. So any thoughts about other ways in which the November elections and also, as Anne mentioned, the June primaries here may have been pushed back to July. Is there any, well, let's just stick with the one big question first and then get down to the nitty gritty. Is there any chance that the November elections could be postponed using pandemic, possibly a second flare up as a rationale? I mean, most of the people that I'm hearing from say that it's very unlikely that the November election could be canceled or postponed. What I think is likely is that there are efforts to sow confusion, voter suppression, measures that are taken to cause a lot of disruption in the election or to um, undermine confidence in the outcome of the election. These measures we have absolutely got to be on guard against. And I worry in some ways that the bloviating threats about funding the U.S. Postal Service are in that vein where if the election is to be conducted mostly by mail and there are threats to the postal service, it, it undermines confidence that we can conduct an election in good order in this environment. And I think that what we all are working for is to be able to adapt our election procedures and proceed to conduct an election in, in good order in November. Anyone else want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I, I, I would just say, I do think Anne is, is right about that, you know, that that's really the issue um, is trying to make sure that we could have a, a safe election and an inclusive election. But there's, you know, there are different states are going to make different kinds of decisions on all of that. Um, and I don't see a lot of likelihood that the federal government through the Department of Justice or, you know, whatever will, will end up having a big impact. I think it's going to be very much state by state. I mean, the one thing to keep in mind, which may sound a little science fiction, like how could this happen, is that 
um, you know, if you look at the Constitution, the Constitution does not actually require that people vote in order to pick presidential electors. It's completely up to states to figure out, well, not 100% completely up to states because it depends on particular laws, but states can, can do it in different ways. And the most common way that a presidential electors were picked in the early um, 19th century was by state legislatures. And it's hard to imagine that a state would decide to do that, but it is constitutionally possible that a state could do that. You know, you could have, let's say, the Wisconsin legislature, which is not known for its support of voting rights, <laughs> to say the least, uh, deciding that instead of having an election to pick electors, it will have, it will let the state legislature make that determination. And do they have to follow any guidance in terms of how they apportion that? I don't, I don't think so, but, you know, I don't know, I'd ha I really should talk to, you know, someone who knows, uh, who's more of an expert in election law. I just know when it was done in the past, no. I mean, and there were differences between states when they did that. Some states uh, would have some allocated statewide and others by congressional district. Um, you know, there, there, there are a lot of different ways to do that. And, you know, I'm, and it, it, you know, it's because it is up to state legislature. That's why we can have, Maine can have um, our particular system where there, you know, some elect, electoral votes are statewide and some are by congressional district, just Maine and, and Nebraska have that. Or that we could have ranked choice voting, which is a little bit up in the air now, whether that's going to happen because of the pending uh, people's veto petition, which we don't know if it's going to qualify or not for the signatures. But we can do that because the Constitution, you know, gives states that right. Now, that I think is probably not going to happen because it would, I think there'd be really pretty severe legitimacy kind of crisis, if, especially if the ultimate outcome depended on that kind of, uh, you know, process, you know, if a, if a few states did that and they tipped the balance. Uh, but then again, you never, you never know. And I don't see any, certainly any constitutional problem with it. Many it, of the provisions that govern this are in state constitutions. And so, for example, the special powers that were granted to our governor in the last legislative session give her some latitude to adjust provisions in law to accommodate changes in the election, but they do not give her the power to alter what's in our state constitution. So, you know, she can't move the election date in Maine um, under the special powers, and the special powers that she was granted don't extend that far out anyway. So there would have to be more legislative action to allow her even to do that. I have a question, Anne. Uh, could you uh, explain what powers she may have relative to ranked choice voting? Um, well, I mean, she, she has some special powers granted to her. It seemed like it was primarily around the deadlines, like she can move dates here and there, and that was one that she took advantage of. Um, we saw the governor of Michigan issue a proclamation that made other provisions to do with um, absentee balloting and absentee ballot requests being sent to all voters. You know, we think she would have the power to make 
a proclamation similar to what Michigan did. Um, you know, she can't obviously cancel the election. She can move the dates. She can adjust some provisions, and it only lasts for a, a definite period of time. So, you know, it's it's enough to get us through July, but it's not enough to you know she doesn't have the powers applicable to the November election at this point. So the federal government can't just declare a state of emergency and say they're being postponed and then just keep postponing them? I'm not, that is not what I'm hearing. This is not my area of expertise, but I am not hearing that. I don't, I don't think they can, but then again, um, you know, what the federal government can do ultimately depends on what the court says that they can do. Um, you know, and... I've lost a certain amount of faith in the in the court since really since Bush v. Gore because that was a decision you know and I remember November 2000 teaching in, Intro to American Government and say, and I, and saying to classes well there's really no reason for the Supreme Court even to take this case considering that it has to do with the Florida Supreme Court and Florida law and you have a court that believes in federalism, in other words, states making a lot of decisions, and then they took it and issued this really absurd decision that, you know, not just based on me, but, you know, legal scholars saying it because it only applied to that particular election, which is not something that, you know, <laughs> legal decisions usually do. I mean, you say, this is a precedent, this is a new rule, this is a new, you know, and uh, so, I mean, I, I, that's probably the most cynical, uh, you know, perspective here. And I, I don't, I think it's, but it's just something to keep in mind if you think of, you know, what are possibilities of what can happen. I think they, though, that we probably will. I, I, you know, I think the weight will be on, we need to have an election and we'll have to figure out how to, how to do it. So let's move back to the state. The uh, state primary that was scheduled for June has been pushed back to July 14th. Uh, and can you say what's on that ballot and what ranked choice voting will be used for? There will be um, federal primaries. So there is a contested primary for the Republican nomination for congressperson in CD2. And there is a contested race in the Democratic Party for U.S. Senate, ranked choice voting would be used in both of those. There are um, state legislative contests that have three or more candidates. So if you live in one of those districts, you would use ranked choice voting to select um, party nominees for state legislative office. And then there will be two bond questions. You do not need to be a party member to vote on the bond questions. One is a transportation bond and one is a broadband internet bond. Um, you can vote on those even if you're not enrolled. Um, and so ranked choice voting will be used in all the candidate races that feature three or more candidates in this July 14th election. Ralph, you've expressed some concern that uh, some of the aspects of ranked choice voting that you feel are unnecessary, like bringing the ballots to Augusta may cause some complications in the middle of a pandemic? Well, I, my concern is that the pandemic will provide a rationale for those who oppose ranked choice voting 
to further weaken our ranked choice voting laws or eliminate them or something to that effect. Um, you remember that ranked choice voting was legislated by the public as a uh, uh, initiative petition process. Uh, and then the legislature, in its wisdom, by the leadership of both major parties, eliminated ranked choice voting. A people's partial veto was then uh, voted on to restore some of the ranked choice voting. Now, uh, undoubtedly, uh, it continues to be a, a controversial method of of voting. And my concern is that uh, a variety of policy objectives uh, will be pushed forward uh, using the pandemic as a, uh, as a rationale. We, we've seen that with respect to uh, access to abortion in, in, in other states. We've seen that uh, uh, what's another example uh, um, uh, matters of uh, whether gun stores represent an essential business that should be open or closed. Uh, in other words, these other policy controversies are using the pandemic as a means for furthering um, a, a, a political interest, and I'm concerned that ranked choice voting could be a, a victim of that. Anne or oh. Amy? Amy had her hand up go first. Amy. I wanted to ask Anne, you a, ask you a question, Anne, which was, uh, what about this, uh, this I know there's a lawsuit uh, to try to stop the people's veto that would, against uh, presidential um, ranked choice voting? Yeah, and maybe start with what, talk about the people's veto first, just to explain that for listeners, please. So let me just say first that right now the Secretary of State is planning to conduct a ranked choice count in um, the days immediately following July 14th. Their instructions to their town clerks and every other posturing that they've done is indicating that we're going to have the election on the 14th and by Friday after the election, they are gonna start a ranked choice tabulation at that point. So that's the path we're on, and I would be very surprised. It's not out of the question, but I would be very surprised if the governor believed her special powers allowed her to cancel the ranked choice aspect of the July election. So everybody, as far as I know, is planning that we're gonna have ranked choice voting in July and working in that direction. I mean, I think, the social distancing protocols that the CDC is recommending is going to present some challenges for the personnel at the Secretary of State's office. If you were there and watched public tabulation before, you could see that not only were they all working in very close proximity to each other, but the gallery was also full of people that were sitting, you know, cheek by jowl watching. And so the social distancing requirements are going to maybe require some additional space or a different location or something. I don't know. There will be some challenges there, but I can say they are planning to go ahead and do it. Um, the people's veto that is being run by the main GOP 
would affect the use of ranked choice voting in the presidential election in in November. I mean, and so if they are successful in gathering enough signatures, the use of ranked choice voting in the presidential election would be suspended and the question would be put to voters in November. We've done this before, um, you know, and we would decide based on that whether we would use ranked choice voting in subsequent presidential elections. The proponents of that people's veto have until June 15th to get their signatures in. They, I believe, are um, disappointed that they won't be able to use the June election in order to complete their signature gatherings. So because the election has post been postponed, it caused them loss of an opportunity to gather signatures at the polls. Um, they probably would have had a challenging timeline with that election anyway to get their signatures certified by town clerks and turned in by the 15th. But nevertheless, you know, they are they have not abandoned their um, campaign and they are still trying to gather those signatures. The lawsuit that's been filed by the Committee for Ranked Choice Voting has to do with the difference between the timeline if you considered the law going to, into effect when it was passed during the legislative session that ended last summer or whether you considered it going into effect when it was enacted which was when the governor allowed it to become law without her signature in January. The claim that they're making is that the Maine State Constitution requires it to have been, to go into a force, in force on the earlier date, which of course, if that was true, would have meant that we should have used ranked choice voting in the March primary as well. Um, but Nevertheless, if you read the Constitution, the Maine State Constitution, there is this question which has never been litigated. If they prevail, it raises questions about what role does the governor play in bringing law into force? You know, we, you know, passed to be enacted and signed into law. When it's signed into law is when we think it, um, its effective date starts ticking. This would say, no, no, the effective date started ticking when it passed in the legislature. Forget what the governor might or might not have done. People would have been down for that plan when LePage was governor. Well, I mean, I, you know, it has not been litigated, so I guess there's an open question here. It, it, um, I don't know what to say, that, well, we, you know. We have just actually two minutes left, so I want to go around and give you each a chance to say anything you didn't get a chance to say yet. Ralph, you look like you wanted to jump in there. Do you want to go first? Well, I, I would just make a, a pitch for continuing to uh, work as, as well as any of us can towards uh, bringing the tools of science to bear on matters of public policy. I think it's particularly critical in two areas. We didn't mention climate change as a, as a science and science denial uh, political matter, but we have a much more immediate and much more visibly life-threatening situation uh, at the moment with the pandemic. And this is a perfect opportunity to make sure that we're listening to scientists. And when, as you sign off, can you say a little bit about your program that aired on Friday? Because I know you delved into a lot of these issues in depth. 
Yeah, Matt Dunlap, who is our current Secretary of State, and Allison B.A., who's the Executive Director of the ACLU, talked about elections, uh, the July 4th elections and the plans that are being made there. It was a very lively conversation with a lot of support for voting and voter participation. So if you have a chance to listen to that from the archive, I think you would find it informative. And my final word will be to say, Election workers are essential workers. They're going to be on the front line, just like healthcare workers are in the July 14th election. We can protect them by getting an absentee ballot. You can order an absentee ballot online right now. And I would encourage everyone who wants to vote in July to put their absentee ballot request in right now. Thank you, Ann Luther. Professor Amy Freed, last word. I'd say another aspect of this uh, election in, in this time is that candidates are having real challenges getting their messages across sometimes. And I think people are going to have to put a little bit more effort into seeking that out um, and seeing whether where they're speaking, um, you know, sometimes virtually with, with interviews, sometimes, uh, you know, through the media, but also streaming. And, uh, you know, so if you're, making decisions going forward to, you know, really look for opportunities to, to see what the candidates are saying. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me today. You've been listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. My guest today for this Elections 2020 edition of Maine Currents are Professor Amy Free, Chair of the Political Science Department at University of Maine, Ann Luther, host of the Democracy Forum on WERU, as well as board member of the League of Women Voters of Maine, and former state representative Ralph Chapman. And uh, so stay tuned. We've got more information, public affairs programming coming up next, tonight of great music here on your community radio station, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming online at WERU.org. And don't forget the new app that you can get. You can get all the great information, uh, great music, important information, and we are you, and we will get through this together. We'll see you in a few weeks.